Hello, my name is Alastair Moss and I'm the Cardiology Co-Chair of the British Society for Cardiovascular Imaging Trainee Committee. And today I'm joined by Dr. Rachel Forsyth, who is a vascular surgical trainee at the University of Edinburgh in the UK. Today we'll be discussing her research using cardiovascular imaging techniques to image aortic aneurysmal disease. Firstly, thanks for taking part in this podcast. The theme of this year's intervention, International Day of Radiology is cardiac imaging, and you're part of a groundbreaking team of researchers at the University of Edinburgh. Can you tell me a bit about the projects you're currently involved in? Sure. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to do this podcast. It's always nice to talk about a subject um, that you're interested in. Um, so, as you say, I'm a vascular trainee, and my PhD um, was done under the supervision of Professor David Newby, in the University of Edinburgh. Um, I looked at molecular and cellular imaging techniques in abdominal aortic aneurysms. So this is an area that Edinburgh has got quite a lot of experience in. Um, but as you say, the work we've done on aneurysm disease is um, fairly novel and we're the first in our field to report um, the scanning techniques that we've used. Um, so taking it right back to the start, what is molecular and cellular imaging? Now, as a vascular surgeon, I am no expert radiologist or expert imager, but I like to think of it as um, a window into a previously unseen world. And now that might, might sound a little bit grand, but essentially these techniques allow us to visualise biology in action in a living human being. So we use um, either radio tracers or um, cellular uh, contrast agents in order to visualize biological activity in the vessel wall and we've we've done that in the aorta and it's got its advantage over traditional imaging which can just tell us about anatomy and morphology uh, we can look at anatomy and morphology using ct and combine this with pet in order to look at biological activity as well so it's pretty exciting um, and it's an area that is really growing in the in the arena of cardiovascular research so as i said we looked at this in patients with abdominal aortic aneurysm disease in a multi-centre study, um, we scanned patients with asymptomatic aneurysms, so aneurysms over four centimetres in diameter. Um, one of the uh, projects was using MRI and an agent called USPIO, which essentially uh, is a marker of cellular inflammation. So it's taken up by macrophages, and we looked at it in the aortic aneurysm wall. Uh, and the idea was that this um, agent would be able to show us on an MRI scan the degree of inflammation in an aneurysm wall. And we looked at this in 342 patients with asymptomatic aneurysms um, from throughout three centres in Scotland. And we tracked the diameter of their aneurysm over time. And what we found was this MRI technique, firstly, was able to show us areas of inflammation in the aneurysm wall. And secondly, this was correlated with um, future growth and also future need for rupture and repair. So it tells us that inflammation is a key part of aneurysm development, and that's not novel. But what it's shown us is that we can visualise that information in a living human being. And that, in fact, that does tell us more um, than just knowing a patient has an aneurysm and knowing the size of the aneurysm. So that was the big MRI study. Uh, and it, whilst it was very interesting, um, overall, the uh, using this MRI imaging technique doesn't add value to risk prediction models. So as I say, we already look at patients' morphology and anatomy using ultrasound scanning and CT scanning. And that's the standard way of monitoring aneurysms is looking at their size and um, having them under regular surveillance to see how the diameter increases over time. 
And this imaging technique, whilst it was interesting, doesn't add anything if we already look at the size of the aneurysm, whether the patient smokes, uh, and some other risk factors for clinical progression. But out of this large study um, came a smaller study, which was the more exciting study in my eyes. Can you explain a bit more to the audience uh, what that involves? Sure. So that was the smaller study that's come out of the, the big MRI study. And essentially, we used um, PET-CT uh, to look at microcalcification in aortic aneurysm wall using a tracer called sodium fluoride. And again, this is this idea of molecular imaging. Uh, we scanned 72 patients with aneurysms and then monitored growth over time. And we find that this type of imaging actually adds value and it predicts future aneurysm expansion independent of the known clinical risk factors for disease progression. So independent of age, sex, BMI, blood pressure, current smoking, but crucially independent of aneurysm diameter. So this is probably this is the first imaging technique that has provided this information over and above what we already gain in our usual clinical assessments. And so it's very exciting research, which we're going to take further. So that's really interesting. Um, I, there's obviously a lot of work surrounding sodium fluoride at the moment. And you said that in, in Mars, obviously, looking at macrophage activity didn't necessarily add that much to it. Do you think the sodium fluoride is telling you about inflammation or do you think it's a different process that's been highlighted here? Well, I think we know that sodium fluoride uh, is a marker of microcalcification, and vascular calcification is key to many um, atherosclerotic disease processes, and it is um, part of aortic aneurysm disease. Um, we know when we open up an aorta, there's lots of crunchy hard bits in amongst the thrombus and amongst the uh, normal wall. But what we don't understand is what, what significance uh, and what relevance it is to have calcification in the aorta. And we know we can see it on a plain CT scan if it's well established, but our PET CT imaging allows us to identify early calcification as a marker of tissue necrosis, cell death, smooth muscle cell apoptosis, and it's just really as a marker of intense biological activity at the initiation and the propagation stage of aneurysm disease development. And I think I look at it as we know lots about aneurysms, but there's a lot we don't know. And we know certain things um, certain characteristics, such as, as I said, smoking, um, that increase a patient's risk of having one and, and propagating an aneurysm. But there's 70% of clinical heterogeneity of aneurysm disease is unknown. And these sorts of imaging techniques, we aim to reduce that 70% of unknown. Uh, and we've got one step closer to doing that with this, this sodium fluoride PET-CT project. So what do you think will be required then to take this to in the, in the clinical sphere? Are we, are we ready to start using sodium fluoride in the clinic yet for looking at aneurysmal expansion? I think we're not ready yet. And, I, and you know, honestly, um, I think it would be fairly ambitious for us to say that every patient with an aneurysm would have a sodium fluoride PET-CT. That's not practical and that'd be far too expensive. But I think it has its uses um, potentially in those patients in the grey area and those in whom the decision of whether and when to intervene is unclear. So traditionally, there's a, a threshold diameter that we would start to think about whether re repair an aneurysm, normally set at around five and a half centimetres. But we know that some people's aneurysms are smaller than that in rupture. We know that many people ha have aneurysms much larger than that that never rupture. And so it's not a really straightforward decision, particularly in those with a hostile aneurysm and with multiple comorbidities. Perhaps further risk stratification with something like sodium fluoride PET-CT would be useful in order to help clinical decision making. So that's one potential area for use in the clinical arena. But another and perhaps even more exciting um, novel area of use would be in um, 
drug development. We know there are no available medications that arrest or reverse aneurysm growth. And if we, however, if we have an imaging technique like this that can be a surrogate marker of biological change, there's potential to use this when developing drugs and when evaluating the effect that drugs have on aneurysms, which is a pretty exciting field. This is all fascinating, fascinating. So have you got any projects which you're planning to do in the near future? Sure. So um, one of our other PhD students in Edinburgh is using sodium fluoride to look at um, the thoracic aorta. So Edinburgh um, is the National Centre for Thoracic Abdominal Aneurysm Repair, and we manage a lot of um, thoracic aneurysm disease and also thoracic dissection. So we're in a good place to do this, uh, this research. And our current PhD student is using sodium fluoride in patients with thoracic uh, dissection and intramural hematoma, essentially acute aortic syndromes because that's another area that we knew even less about. Um, and we're hoping that fluoride might add more information to this, these disease processes, um, that it might identify thoracic dissections that will go on to become aneurysmal, because we don't know whose dissection is going to um, dilate and become aneurysmal and repair. So that's a pretty exciting project, which is just um, starting off. But there are, you know, there's plenty of other directions that we can and we might take this um, research in. Um, and one particularly interesting area for me is looking at EVAR durability, so endovascular aneurysm repair durability. Um, because we often stent these aneurysms, but there's lots of evidence to say that they're not always durable. And maybe up to 20% of people with a stented aneurysm will need further intervention. And it's about making the right decision for the right patients. Can we identify using sodium fluoride PET-CT or an alternative tracer? And uh, those aneurysms that will do badly with a stent, because with a stent, you're not removing the disease process. You're putting a stent inside the aneurysm. Uh, so I would argue you've still got, you know, biological activity going on at the top and the bottom and around these stents. And we often see the development of uh, leaks at the top, at the bottom, in between the stents and um, from the native artery to the stent. Uh, so if we could potentially identify high-risk aneurysms for stent failure, then again, we could target the most appropriate um, treatment option for the, these patients. Uh, so we're thinking about an EVAR durability study as well. Excellent, Rachel. Well, that's, that's fascinating. Um, the International Day of Radiology is obviously centred around cardiac imaging, and you're one of a number of growing women involved in cardiovascular research. I just wonder whether you could reflect on some of the challenges that you've you've faced in trying to balance both a, a research and clinical uh, career in this sort of sphere. Sure. Well, I guess as a surgeon, I'm fairly used to being in the minority in terms of um, male to female ratios. Um, but I it's I don't know whether the challenges I face are particularly that much different to a, a male. I think probably the biggest challenge is, is from other people's perceptions of um, family and professional priorities. Certainly um, I have gone through my career with no uh, issues with um, people looking down on me or making comments about my, my, my gender. Um, and I think I've been fairly treated the whole time. But, you know, there are challenges that come with being an academic, with being a surgeon, and particularly with being an academic surgeon, uh, regardless of being a male or a female. But there are increasing numbers of women going into surgery, vascular surgery in Scotland has a lot of female registrars, I think it's about 50-50 at the moment. So the times are changing in terms of um, 
the ratios of male to female in surgical specialties as well as academia. And I just sort of think anything's possible if you want it enough. It, it doesn't really matter who you are and where you're from. Uh, I think without a doubt, you've got to have a good uh, team behind you, a good support. And certainly I've got a young child and a very supportive husband. And that, that facilitates me to be able to do what I want to do in, in academic and clinical spheres. And we've got lots of aspiring images who will be be listening into this podcast is there any advice that you could share with them if they wanted to try and follow the career that you're taking at the moment sure well I, I suppose um I feel like I happened upon some of this success by luck um but actually in reality it was by understanding the value of the people around me and by coming to centre coming to Edinburgh I went to university in Edinburgh but I, I left to go and uh, do surgical training elsewhere but I came back to Edinburgh the knowledge that there's such a good setup here and there's such expertise uh, so I think find the right people to work with, find a team that you feel part of, find a group that's got the experience to help you with your projects, but also to help you get by in terms of the, the difference between academic and clinical life um, and surround yourself with those people. And, and don't give up. It's tricky. You know, you'll have experiments that fail, projects that don't work, p-values that are not significant. And it's a kind of miserable at some points, but um, keep going. And I think if you want it enough, it's possible. But certainly a lot of enthusiasm, quite a lot of caffeine, and surround yourself with good people um, and a good supervisor is the way forward. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts in this podcast. It's been really interesting listening to your thoughts in what is a rapidly evolving field. Um, to our listeners out there, more details of Dr. Forsyth's work can be found on the hyperlink attached to this podcast. And we look forward um, to having you tune in again soon. Many thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you.